Good evening. I wish to talk to you this evening about the, the state of the nation. Ladies and gentlemen, to whom it concerns, it's a great goal! That was a super goal! Cantwell makes no mistake from the spot, and error win 3-2. Look at him! Look at him in anguish! Oh, look at the Spanish keeper in anguish! Oh, it's a false! It's a false! And up yours as well. Hello and welcome back to Irish Football Chronicles. If you're just joining us, this is a podcast counting down the 100 most important games in Irish football history and throwing some of the culture and the news stories of the time into the pot for a bit of flavour as we go. For this initial run of episodes, we've been focusing on the qualifiers for Italia 90 and this time we're covering the Republic's penultimate qualifier against Northern Ireland at Lansdowne Road on October 11th, 1989. But before we get on to the football, as is our wont, I just want to set the scene by dipping briefly into the news of the time. And to do that, I'm going to play you a sound that hasn't been heard in Ireland for almost 250 years. Let Electric Eddie show you the quickest traffic-free route to work. Sorry, wrong clip. I meant to play this one. ominous howl of the wolf, a sound that would have chilled the blood of our ancestors right up until the late 18th century when the last known wild wolf in Ireland was shot on Mount Leinster. The news moves so fast nowadays that you've probably forgotten all about Eamon Ryan's proposal to reintroduce wolves to Ireland. That was only January. But back in 1989, one County Leash family was well ahead of the pack when it came to letting the wolves out on an unsuspecting Ireland. One of the big news stories in the run-up to the Republic versus Northern Ireland game centred on the small village of Killinard, County Leash, where things were getting a little bit hairy. The Costello family of Killinard already owned a small menagerie of wolves, to which they just added a pure white Arctic wolf from the United States. The wolf was sitting in quarantine and the Costellos were planning to breed it with a German shepherd. The wolf dog puppies were then to be sold for £400 apiece, a hefty whack in 1989. It's fair to say that locals had concerns. County Leash dog warden Tristan Blondell, yes really, told the Irish press, I have seen the wolf and I wouldn't like to see it falling into the wrong hands. Not quite sure what he meant by the wrong hands or what he thought they were going to do with the wolves, but I've just had a brilliant idea for a Netflix series. In a time of terror, on an island divided by hate, they thought they'd seen it all. They were wrong. Aidan Gillen, Brendan Gleeson. Raw wolf. Chucky or Anyway, the wolf did eventually make it out of quarantine and go on to sire many, many pups. As far as I can tell, the Killinard wolves seem to have fallen victim to Minister Podrick Flynn's war on dangerous dogs in the early 1990s. I want to tell you something. Try it sometime. And just for clarity, it's not a good idea to breed wolves with dogs or keep them as pets, so please don't try this at home. Now on to the football. Just to bring you up to speed very quickly on where we're at, 
The Republic were on the very brink of qualifying for their first ever World Cup. To put it in a nutshell, Jack Charlton's side had opened their campaign with two scoreless draws and a defeat, but three consecutive home wins against Spain, Malta and Hungary left them firmly in the second qualifying position, a point ahead of Hungary who still had to play Spain twice. But before we move on to this massive historic game, I'm just going to rewind a bit to the 6th of September 1989. Premature World Cup fever was already running rampant in Ireland, and 48,000 fans turned up to see a friendly game between the Republic of Ireland and West Germany at Lansdowne Road. Hard to believe in this day and age when it's difficult to get anyone to take friendly games seriously, but there was a time when big prestige friendlies were taken incredibly seriously. In fact, Irish Rail ran a special train from Limerick to see Jack Charlton's side take on his old sparring partner from the 1966 World Cup final, Franz Beckenbauer. Another thing that was almost as rare as a wild wolf in Ireland at this time was a League of Ireland player in the national team setup. Jack Charlton had picked Pat Byrne, Peter Eccles, and Barry Murphy very early in his reign, but really nothing since then. So it was something of a surprise when Dundalk's goalkeeper, Alan O'Neill, was called up to the squad for this game in the absence of Jerry Payton and Kellam O'Hanlon. I spoke to Alan about what it was like to be a League of Ireland player around the national team squad at that time. Yeah, well, I've, I've had very, I've been involved at various levels at international level. As you say, amateur level would have been my first one in about 1977-78. Actually, the late Dave Bacuzzi, who only died last week, mm. he was the manager of, of that particular team. Um, I was involved in interleague teams. And then I broke into the Rovers team in 78 under John Giles. And he picked me for international squads in 79 and 80. Then John left and Alan Kelly was in, in charge for one match and he picked me for that match. I didn't play. I haven't pl- I never played. I was involved eight times. Owen picked me. Owen Hand took over from Alan Kelly. And then Jack's first two games in charge against Wales and Uruguay. He picked a massive squad of 28 players. That would have been 86. Uh, and there was two League of Ireland players, myself and Pat Bourne. We were both picked. Uh, Pat did go on to play on, under Jack. I never got a game in, in either games. And then this game against West Germany came up in 1989. They were a top, top team. Now, I wasn't in the original squad. As a part-time professional, I worked during the day. I was in the finance unit of the Department of Education. So I think the game was scheduled for a Wednesday. I wasn't in the squad. And I'm working away in the office Tuesday. I think it was Tuesday morning. And there's a phone call for me from Mick Bourne. Can you get yourself out to the airport hotel? So uh, I'm in a whirlwind now. Will I go out to the airport? Yeah. Go up to the boss and say, uh, listen, um, um, I'm on my way out to the airport now. I have to play for the international team. I'm involved for the match tomorrow against West Germany. So you can imagine how surreal that was. A woman at pushing your pen to the next in a daze, going home, picking up my gear, out to the airport hotel, and then involved with the squad. Now, I would have known been involved with a good few of the lads before that but uh, it was it was daunting <laughs> it was daunting because uh, as you say league of ireland players were rarely involved at international level pop Warren did make a few games in the early reign of jack charlton but to be called in at that stage it was like a dream come true if you know what i mean because i thought that day had gone and here i was sitting in the squad i think it was room with packy 
and uh, preparing for a game against West Germany the next day. I always had aspirations. As you say, I've been part of the Dundalk team of 88, which we had won the double the previous year. I, looking back on my career, over that period of time, 88 to about 92, I was probably at my peak. So, yeah, every time an international squad would be named, we kind of hope, hope would be the word rather than any real confidence around. But you were always looking to say, well, if some injury happened or whatever, you know, maybe I could get a call up. Beyond yourself, do you, do you think there were, obviously it was an extraordinarily strong Irish setup at the time, um, you know, top first division players as they would have been. Do you think there were players in, in the League of Ireland who could have pushed for that squad? Well, Pat was an obvious one at the time, mm-hmm. Pat Bourne. But I mean, I look back, I look back on, on the, the team that played that day. I think you'd find it hard to say there were lads who were really pushing. I mean, we had a lot of top players here. Mm-hmm. But the big difference for us was the, the level of fitness. We wouldn't have had the fitness levels to compete at, at that level. Is, is it slightly different for a goalkeeper? Is that fitness issue less of an issue? I, I, I remember discussing this with Packy uh, at the time. And, I, you know, that was my head look. A shot's a shot, isn't it? Yeah. He said, yeah, but the players you're playing against are capable of, of, better thing, of, of greater things, if you know what I mean. Their speed of thought is quicker. So your speed of thought has to be better as well. Now, I'd like to say that I acquitted myself any time that I did step up, that I did acquit, acquit myself very well. But it was a step up for goalkeepers as well. Unfortunately, Alan didn't get a run between the posts for this game. But the match did preserve Ireland's unbeaten record at home, which now stretched back 14 games to 1986. Against the run of play, Ireland took the lead in the 12th minute when Frank Stapleton latched on to Thomas Hessler's daft back pass to equal Don Given's record of 19 international goals for Ireland. Hessler then made amends 20 minutes later, skinning Liam Brady before laying on a nice pass for Dorfner to thunder one in from 25 yards. Ireland improved in the second half and Whelan nearly stole it right at the end, but a one-all draw allowed everyone to leave Lansdowne Road with face saved. Oh, I see. Then everything is wrapped up in a neat little package. Well, not quite. Because in the days after the game, nobody wanted to talk about the match. All anyone wanted to talk about was an incident which took place in the 35th minute when Liam Brady, Ireland's midfield maestro and arguably the Republic's greatest ever player, was abruptly yanked off the field. Never the sentimental type, Jack gave the legend the hook and replaced him with Andy Townsend 10 minutes before halftime. This kicked off an unholy row in pubs, workplaces and newspaper columns up and down the country, the like of which wouldn't be seen again until the Saipan incident in 2002, It really was that polarising for a time. You were either for Jack or you were for Liam. Brady's defenders, and Brady himself, felt that the great man had been publicly humiliated in front of his home crowd. They asked if it was really necessary to haul him off so close to half-time. Surely a man who'd served the national team so well for so long deserved at least the dignity of being allowed to disappear down the tunnel along with his teammates. But Jack Charlton was a deeply pragmatic manager. His reasoning was quite simple. He felt Ireland were being overrun in the middle of the field. He was worried about losing that lengthy unbeaten record at home. And Brady was partly at fault for the West German goal. So from Jack's perspective, 10 minutes either way really made no difference. 
but it made all the difference in the world to Liam Brady. Just hours after the game finished, Brady dropped his bombshell. After 71 caps and almost 15 years in the green, he was quitting international football with immediate effect. Now, it has to be said that compared to Roy Keane's spectacular meltdown in 2002, Brady's exit was fairly dignified. There were no viral rants. He didn't invite Jack to do anything anatomically impossible with his or anyone else's bollocks. Brady was clearly hurt, but also pretty philosophical. I think it's time to call it a day, he said. I've never been an also-ran, and the way things are, if I stay in the squad, I will be an also-ran. John Giles was one of many to castigate Charlton in the press for humiliating Ireland's golden boy. Eamon Dunphy, never slow to put the boot in, also joined the chorus of indignation, which was a bit rich given that Dunphy himself had called Brady a disgrace and a monument to conceit only a few years earlier. The truth was that a 33-year-old playmaker, even one of Brady's quality, was never going to hold down a regular place in Charlton's system, which above all else required hard running in the middle of the park. Charlton later admitted that the West Germany game had been a final chance for Brady, Tony Galvin and Frank Stapleton to prove that they had a future in international football. None of the three succeeded. All the same, Jack was a bit graceless about it all. He told reporters that while Brady had made the decision to retire, I think I made it for him. Liam Brady would make one final appearance in a green shirt in a friendly against Finland a couple of months later. So let's just take a moment to remember the international career of one of Ireland's greatest ever players. Liam Brady, showing his composure so early in the game to Giles. And now Brady again. who missed the penalty for Arsenal in the Cup Winners' Cup final here in 1980. The penalty shootout against Valencia. Liam, don't do it this time. 2-2. The point is saved. Now it's Brady. Oh, beautifully played. He's in. Yes, Liam Brady. On the same night as the West Germany friendly, Northern Ireland lost 2-1 at home to Hungary in Group 6. That meant the North were coming to Dublin with nothing to play for. Hungary, meanwhile, were just a point behind the Republic with two games to play, but both those games, as we said, were against Spain. Now, the sense of excitement and anticipation around the game was in stark contrast with the mood in the world at large. This was a strange, tense, uneasy period in world history. The post-war world order was breaking down and a lot of unusual and disturbing things seemed to be happening at once. In Ireland, Gardy and Baldoyle were searching for a young man on a motorcycle who was spotted spraying blackberry bushes with a canister, the kind of blackberry bushes young children and families might pick on a late summer's evening. The man fled when challenged and left the canister behind him. It was examined and found to be filled with a deadly toxic weed killer. No one knew why he'd done it, no one knew if he'd do it again, and ultimately, he was never found. Meanwhile, back in the USSR, things were taking a turn for the bizarre. The country was on the verge of one of the steepest declines in living standards in modern human history. On the edge of a long dark night, fear was lurking in the shadows and the skies. On the evening of September 27th, 1989, 
group of schoolboys were having a friendly kickabout in the Soviet city of Voronezh. It was a warm night, autumn hadn't yet reached southern Russia. As the boys chased the ball around the park, perhaps picturing themselves as Oleg Potasov or Vasil Ratz, they noticed a strange pink glow in the sky. According to TASS, the official Soviet news agency, the boys then saw a spherical object of deepest red about 10 metres across hovering above them. It circled the park, disappeared, then reappeared. By now, a large, excited crowd had gathered in the evening gloom. What happened next, according to the Irish Independent, was truly, well, let's just let's just tell it as they reported it. The astonished crowd saw a number of tall, three-eyed figures emerge from the sphere. One of them, who may have been a robot, fired a ray gun at a young man which briefly made him vanish. The figures returned to the craft and the sphere took off into the darkening sky, never to be seen again. I'd like to say that was the end of the UFOs for this episode, but we still have a good few Packy Bonner clearances to get through. Back on planet Earth, Ireland was consumed with World Cup fever, to an extent that was, as we said, frankly a bit premature. Qualification was still in the balance, but the commercial bandwagon was already revving up, and one of those desperate to get on board was comedian Dermot Morgan. Now, the future Father Ted star had formed this sort of thing. This was a time when you could make quite a tidy living from sports-based comedy novelty songs, and Morgan had topped the charts at Christmas 85 with his tribute to boxer Barry McGuigan. Thank you very, very much, Mr. Eastwood. Thank you very, very much, Mr. Eastwood. Morgan was a very funny man, but nothing dates faster than humour, and it's probably fair to say that the likes of Thank You Very Much, Mr. Eastwood, Get Out of That Saddle, Stephen, or Don't Pick Wardy, wouldn't raise much of a chuckle nowadays. But this was a time when humour was broader, performance was more important than polish, and mainstream audiences got a huge kick out of hearing impressions and regional accents. And Morgan could pull it off with genuine flair. So the day before the Northern Ireland qualifier, before the Republic had qualified for anything, Dermot Morgan launched his World Cup single in Nonna's Italian restaurant on Merrion Row. Don't look for it, it's not there anymore. The song was called Mamma Mia, What a Beautiful Football Team, and it went a little something like this. I dreamt I got to heaven. There was many a famous face. Except for Eamon Dunphy, who was in the other place. Not the guy who, when I saw St. Peter, I really had to laugh. He was a queuing up with a pen in hand. Jackie's autograph. Mamma mia, mamma mia! What a beautiful team! The one that Jack could build, the one he never agreed. They're singing in St. Peter and in the Colosseum. Oh, the man of Ireland! What a beautiful team! Mamma mia, mamma mia! What a beautiful team! The one Jack could build. Quite a spirited effort, isn't it? Dermot Morgan wasn't the only one relying on Italian 90 for a big payday. As the nation held its breath, the makers of flimsy green, white and gold tricolours, misspelled t-shirts and cheap acrylic caps were on tenterhooks. But as we all know, nothing happens in Ireland without the rugby class getting its fingers in the till. And the IRFU, you'll be glad to hear, was already quids in. 
Uh, the Irish Rugby Football Union took a 15% cut of the football team's bumper gates at Lansdowne, which meant they'd already made 500 grand from the Malta, Hungary and West Germany games alone. Some consolation for the IRFU after it had spent the past few months defending its decision to support a rugby tour of apartheid South Africa. Always worth remembering that for all the cartoon corruption of the FAI over the years, the really sinister villains of Irish sport tend to be the ones in private school ties rather than blazers. Anyway, enough of them, back to the real football. One of the things that made the Charlton era so special was the slightly hysterical atmosphere of it all. This was all new, this was all heady. It was people losing the run of themselves largely without the aid of alcohol. There was a slightly unreal atmosphere to these massive games that kicked off on weekday afternoons. Remember, there were no floodlights at Lansdowne right up until 1994, so this match got underway at 1.30pm on a Wednesday. Several unions negotiated time off for their members to watch the game, and thousands of school kids suddenly developed 24-hour bugs that got them out of the classroom, although a lot of schools actually screened the game for their pupils as well. On O'Connell Street, touts were hawking tickets at ridiculous prices of up to £100. Very few working-class fans could afford that, so many chose to watch in the pub. And as a result, the stadium was actually a few thousand below capacity for this game, although you'd never guess it from the noise. So now, if you're ready, we'll hop the dart back to 1989 and head to Lansdowne Road for the actual match. Jack Charlton had some injury worries ahead of the game, with Steve Staunton, Kevin Moran and Paul McGrath all on the doubtful list, although that may have been Jack playing silly buggers because Staunton and Moran would both start. Andy Townsend stepped in to replace McGrath in midfield. The team in full was Bonner, Morris, Staunton, Moran, McCarthy, Houghton, Townsend, Whelan, Sheedy, Cascarino and Aldridge. Worth noting that with Frank Stapleton on the bench, that starting eleven only had 20 international goals between them. Northern Ireland boss Billy Bingham, who was already the longest-serving international manager in Europe, promised to make things awkward for the Republic, even though the North were out of contention. They line out in a 4-5-1, with Linfield goalkeeper George Dunlop between the posts, and future Shamrock Rovers and Northern Ireland manager Michael O'Neill starting behind lone striker Colin Clark. As you might expect, the Irish political elite have nabbed first-class tickets aboard the bandwagon. As well as Taoiseach Charles Hawhey and his son, Dublin Lord Mayor Sean Hawhey, Ministers Bobby Malloy and Michael O'Kennedy are present at the game, along with City Manager Frank Feely and Liam Hamilton, Chief Justice of the High Court. It's worth noting that God Save the Queen wasn't played before the game, nor was the Northern Ireland flag or the Union flag flown on the flagpole behind the goal. Instead, the Italian Tricolore took its place. Referee Pietro Delia gets the game underway. An expectant crowd roars the Republic on. This is it. Mathematics and permutations aside, everyone believes that a win here will seal the holy grail of Irish football, that first ever World Cup Finals appearance. But it's quickly apparent that the North haven't come to roll over. Just a minute in, Bonner is called into action, diving to grasp a dangerous cross from the left. After a mere 90 seconds, Norman Whiteside, the erstwhile teenage genius now playing a holding midfield role, clatters hard into Ronnie Whelan. He picks up a yellow card. 
players generally got away with a couple of free nibbles early on in games at this time, but Signor Delia isn't messing around. The Republic have their first serious attack in the sixth minute. You don't often see centre-halves launching long throws in the modern game, but Mick McCarthy had a fair set of arms on him, and his throw causes panic in the Northern Ireland box, leading to a corner which Dunlop claims. Dunlop is then called into action again a few minutes later, scrambling away Staunton's free kick. This is already becoming a scrappy, ugly game, with both sides crossing the ball aimlessly to little reward. Nine minutes in, Ray Houghton gets free in the right corner, but Nigel Worthington absolutely demolishes him, almost sending Houghton feet first into a bank of photographers. It's a yellow card all day long, but the ref doesn't agree. A fan in the East Stand takes the law into his own hands and hurls a 7-up can at Worthington. Irish fans weren't always angels. Packy Bonner's famous long punt is getting some work out this afternoon, but without much to show for it. Charlton's game plan relies on his midfielders picking up the pieces from these long balls, but Billy Bingham has seen it all before and the Republic just aren't being allowed to get good possession in the final third. It's all a bit too crude to be described as a tactical battle, in truth, it's a bit like watching two drunken chimps trying to play chess, but the Republic are being seriously frustrated. Steve Staunton tries to break the shackles, bursting through two defenders before shooting at goal, but he's whistled back for a foul. The next chance falls to Aldridge, still looking for a first goal in a competitive international. Cascarino holds the ball up well on the right and lays it off to Houghton, who crosses for his Liverpool teammate, but Aldridge's header is wide of the near post, and he gets a whack on the nose for his trouble. Minutes later, another cross from the right has Dunlop and bother, but Sheedy leans in a bit too much and it's a free kick. Now the crowd are beginning to liven up. This is the familiar pattern they've got used to, watching the green waves surge against the opponent's defence until finally it finds a crack. The chants grow louder, the inflatable bananas are thrust higher and higher, surely that chance is coming. And it is, but at the other end, and it threatens to knock the wheels off the bandwagon altogether. 25 minutes in, Worthington's long free kick is flicked on by Clark and O'Neill is through. He takes aim, but McCarthy slaps him on the arm to put him off and O'Neill's shot hits Bonner and is hooked clear. That should have been 1-0. But now from the throw, O'Neill has it again. He whips a low ball across the box. Bonner dives at it, but palms it straight to Robbie Dennison, who just needs to connect, but McCarthy's there again to block it on the line. Palpitations all around the ground. This was supposed to be the day all those near misses and last-minute heartbreaks were put to bed, but the North aren't going to give it up easily. The Republic can't get their savage rhythm going. The game is stop-start and patchy. Worthington goes in the book for time-wasting, barely half an hour in. Clark, Dennison and O'Neill are still causing problems. Dennison breaks dangerously down the left, but his cross drifts out of play. But now, finally, the Republic strike back. Smart play from Houghton sets Whelan free on the right. He heads the bouncing ball past Donaghy and races for the goal line, then tumbles under pressure. No penalty. Outrage in the stands, but the ref has called it right. Still, it's a brave decision in the circumstances. The half is ticking away with no sign of a goal for the Republic and plenty of scares at the other end. In the stands and in pubs, school assembly areas and living rooms across the country, 
All the banter and bravado has fizzled out, replaced with a sickening, stomach-grinding silence. And then this happens. Dunlop's ball, if he can make it. Kick back in, and it's in the net! Ronnie Whelan! There's nothing original or clever about the attack that finally leads to a goal. Sometimes it's just meant to be. Staunton hoists a long cross from the left, and George Dunlop, under pressure from Aldridge and Cascarino, slaps it weakly towards the edge of the box. The finish, though, is a touch of class. 18 yards out, Ronnie Whelan jabs at the bouncing ball with surgical precision, guiding it past two defenders against the post and into the net. After 68 years of partition, this is the first goal the Republic have ever scored against their northern neighbours. Is this it? Is this finally the moment? Has the curse finally been lifted? Are Ireland going to the World Cup? The crowd are craving the release of halftime, but there's another scare still to come. Seconds before the break, Ray Houghton pulls two Cruyff turns in his own box to see off a northern attack. You have to believe from the fact that Ray Houghton is still alive today that Jack Charlton didn't see that little episode somehow. The ref blows for halftime. With the roar of the crowd still echoing overhead, Jack Charlton gives his team an almighty bollocking. They've done nothing right in the first half other than score, he tells them. Jack, contrary to what you might think, isn't normally a dressing room shouter, but today he's furious. The Republic have been suckered when they're meant to do the suckering. Northern Ireland have done to the Republic what the Republic typically do to other teams. While the players squirm in their seats with their mouthfuls of Lucasade sport, After 90 minutes of share hell, you're going to get thirsty. We'll head back to the mayhem upstairs. The Republic are so close to Italy that the fans can practically taste the carbonara, but there's a somewhat less savoury situation boiling in the stands. A group of Celtic fans have set fire to a Union Jack and are taunting the small band of Northern Ireland fans, some of whom are brandishing hands-off the UDR banners. It's a reminder of the seething political tensions underlying this fixture, but thankfully those tensions fizzle out quickly in the carnival atmosphere. But their half-time excitement isn't over, because shortly thereafter, the public address announcer has a surprise for Ireland fan Brendan Murray. Brendan was a baker with Brennan's Bread, try saying that three times fast, and he dropped his wife Colette off to the Rotunda Hospital that morning. Colette was in labour, but when it became clear that she was going to need a caesarean, she agreed that Brendan could go to the match. Different times. During the halftime break, the PA crackled to life to tell Brendan that Colette had given birth to a baby boy, their third child. Later on, still dressed in his Ireland cap and Packy Bonner t-shirt, Brendan rushed to the rotunda to see the new arrival, whom he insisted was going to be called Tony Cascarino Murray. Colette was still holding out for Keith, but Brendan wasn't in the mood to compromise, telling the Irish press, He's a class above the rest of them. He's the best centre-forward Ireland ever had. A goal-scorer supreme. In fairness, he'd had a very exciting day. If you know Brendan Collette, or indeed Tony Cascarino-Murray, please do get in touch. The second half kicked off with the original Tony Cascarino still on the field, and no changes on either side, and the Republic tantalisingly close to that first World Cup Finals. Within three minutes of the restart, after a flurry of corners for the Republic, Brendan's name choice suddenly made sense. Whelan, good ball. Sheedy, Kevin Moore and Cascarino in there, Cascarino! It 
it's a fantastically worked goal that combines all the best elements of Ireland's football under Charlton. From the cleared corner, Whelan plays a gorgeous pass, almost jabbing down on the ball with his ankle. Back to Sheedy, who curls a high, hanging cross to the far post. Cascarino watches the dropping ball all the way, gets a fireman's run at it, and absolutely barges Fleming into oblivion as he thumps a header to the far corner from 10 yards out. The stout northern resistance has been completely broken by two goals either side of half-time, and it swiftly collapses. Seldom seen under Charlton. The great victories and epic draws of the Charlton era tended to be tight, tense affairs, watched through the fingers from the edge of your seat. But now, with victory assured and qualification almost certain, Ireland are playing with a fearless freedom. The ball is being pinged around in the opponent's half, as players like Whelan, Sheedy and Houghton cut loose and show their class. Barely a minute after Cascarino's goal, a swift break puts Chris Morris free on the right, and his sumptuous cross is headed inches wide by a diving John Aldridge. A couple of minutes later, Sheedy's free kick from the right bounces across the box, and Aldridge is there again, but his header from six yards somehow comes back off the post. Amidst all the elation, it's a frustrating day for John Aldridge, who just can't catch a break in a green shirt. But after 57 minutes, his Liverpool teammate Ray Houghton puts the fizz in the champagne. Townsend looks around and finds that he's got space and time. Sheedy. Houghton. Oh, beautiful goal. 3-0. It's a glorious goal. One of the best Ireland will score under Charlton. Morris finds Sheedy, Sheedy threads a fastidious ball to Houghton, Houghton arrogantly shrugs off Donaghy's challenge and drills a low shot to the net from 20 yards. And now, all around the ground, all around the living rooms and workplaces of Ireland, the game recedes from view, leaving only the excited, if premature, chatter about flights, tickets and accommodation. In the quieter corners of the quieter pubs, Old-timers who remember the last-minute heartbreak of 1957 and the playoff defeat of 1965 shed a soft tear into their pints. Around Lansdowne Road, tricolours defaced with the names of various Dublin suburbs and pubs flutter from the fixtures of the old stadium. The game continues in a blur, but it does continue. Aldridge tumbles under a challenge in the box, no penalty. Cascarino gets up well to a cross, but the header's wide. Somewhere, a newborn's first breath is a sigh of relief. Aldridge, like a heartbroken teenager at a party, is cutting a miserable figure amid the festive atmosphere. On 68 minutes, he's put through on the right-hand side of the box, but his frankly weird shot flies high and wide. A minute later, he wastes another chance begging to be scored. Whelan floats across to Houghton, who heads it back across the box. It breaks for Aldridge, but six yards out with the goal stretching before him like a summer's evening, he blazes his volley over the bar. On 74 minutes, Aldridge gets ahead to Staunton's cross, but Dunlop, who's had a poor, nervy game, holds on. I'm actually going to draw a veil over the rest of Aldridge's afternoon because it's just cruel at this stage. Suffice to say, he gets booked for diving at a time when it wasn't really a bookable offence, and he has a goal disallowed. Dave O'Leary comes on for the last 13 minutes, the latest step in his long rehabilitation after falling out with Jack Charlton in 1986. 
But now, the only sound anyone wants to hear is the final whistle. McCarthy almost gives a goal away with a careless back pass. But moments later, Signor Delia dramatically signals the end of a momentous afternoon in Irish football and the start of a long, raucous evening which might just carry on all the way to the summer. As a frantic, frenzied afternoon cools to a contented evening, Jack's victorious army wends its way back through the leafy suburbs of Dublin 4, dispersing into the pubs, hotel bars and cafes of the city centre. One of the proudest men in Dublin is Don Townsend, father of Andy Townsend, who's rapidly establishing himself as a fixture in the Irish midfield. Don, who played over 300 games in the Football League, had always yearned to play for Ireland himself. He was turned down by the FAI in the 50s, he says, because his mother, rather than his father, was Irish. That complicated relationship with Britain is threaded through Ireland's entire relationship with football in general. The day after the game, the Irish Times reprints an entire host of reports on the match from British newspapers. Hard to imagine that happening today. Of course, the fact that an English World Cup winner is on the verge of bringing Ireland to its first finals also plays into that complicated relationship. Uh, The evening after the day before, Jack Charlton retreats to his hotel room while a crowd gathers in the lobby to follow the Hungary-Spain match, the match that could seal Ireland's qualification. Spain take a 2-0 lead through Salinas and Michel, but Hungary hit back through Pintar, 2-1 at halftime. Jack spends a long, agonising 45 minutes in his hotel room until a beaming Mick Byrne appears at the door to tell him the game is finished 2-2, Pintar with a late equaliser. The result means that Ireland haven't formally qualified, so Jack is in no mood to celebrate prematurely. Celebrating what yeah. they see as qualification. Are well, I would have loved to join them, but I, you can't celebrate until it's finished and finalised and you're there. I mean, England drew tonight and they're there. So there it was, all set up perfectly for a trip to Malta, where anything less than a defeat or a big Hungarian win in Spain will send a delirious nation to the World Cup finals for the very first time. How did that turn out? Well, all being well, that will be the subject of our next episode. Thanks so much for listening, and please, if you get a chance and you're in funds and feeling luck, do please bung us a fiver on Patreon to keep the lights on. Just search Patreon for Irish Football Chronicles and you'll find us. I'd really appreciate it if you could help out with research materials and equipment and so forth. Just a few thank yous for this episode. Thanks so much to Alan O'Neill for sharing his experiences. Um, And as ever, to Greg Malloy of the Killian M2 Irish TV Archive on YouTube. And also to you for listening. Remember, you can get us at 100 Irish Games on Twitter or 100 Irish Games at gmail.com. Please do get in touch to let us know what you think of the show and take care of yourselves. Over and out.